Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor David Eldridge. We've been looking at a kind of step back, broad overview. We've said Mark' purpose is uh, to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we should follow Him. So that's That's what Mark is doing with the way he's put together his material. And one of the things that we've seen in the first few chapters, first couple of chapters, is that Mark emphasizes Jesus' authority. That's one of the ways that he's communicating that Jesus is the Messiah. This isn't just a regular guy. Jesus uh, has this personal authority. He says to people who, in Mark's gospel, don't have any prior connection to him, never met him. And he says, follow me, and they leave everything and do it. They leave their family, they leave their business, they leave their family. Oh, excuse me, they leave their hometown, and they all follow him. This personal authority. He has authority when he teaches. People are amazed when they hear him teach. He doesn't quote other scholars. He doesn't quote other rabbis. He has this, again, personal sense of what the Old Testament says. That's the Bible at the time. And when he communicates it, people are blown away with the clarity and the power by what he says. He's... Casting out demons and people are astonished. He has authority over evil spirits. He says he has authority to forgive sins and he proves it by telling a guy who's paralyzed to get up and walk. He says that he has authority to determine what is and is not acceptable on the Sabbath day. By Jesus' presence, by his actions, by his words, he's communicating, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. He, He never says it explicitly, but the way he's behaving, the way he's carrying himself, again, this this thread of authority through everything he does, it's beginning to, to open eyes to there's something different about him. And the religious leaders see it. And initially, my opinion, I think looking at them through the eyes of charity, giving them the benefit of the doubt, which I think is the right thing to do, it's, otherwise we just X them out really quickly, I think that they're initially genuinely trying to, uh, to, to wrestle, to, to struggle with who Jesus is. He doesn't fit the mold for them. But there are things that he's saying and doing that are hard to deny. And I, and I think they're trying to put those things together. Their expectations of what a, a holy man or the Messiah would be and do with what Jesus is saying and doing. They're trying to figure out how those things mesh. But as we saw last week, at the end of the day, they're not willing to let go of their expectations, their wineskin, in order to embrace Jesus. And they just close their hearts to him. At the end of Mark, I think it was Mark 3, 6, the verse was where it says uh, that they've decided to plot to kill Jesus. They've decided he's not the Messiah. He's got to go. Their hearts have become stubborn. So that is their eyes are closed and they're refusing to open them. They're no longer willing to entertain the, the possibility that Jesus is who he is saying that he is. Again, not directly, but through his through his actions. And so that's where we'll pick up today. This is really just a transitional. We got two transitional passages that we're going to look at. Not super exciting stuff, but I think there's something here for us. So two sections, we'll do the first, we'll do them one at a time. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all Jesus was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions around the Jordan excuse me, regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, Jesus told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he'd healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You're the Son of God. 
But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So Jesus withdraws. He's already in Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. There's a map behind me. Capernaum is the, it's the, the pin on the map, and you can see the, the other cities listed there. So Jesus is in Capernaum. So for him to withdraw by the lake, he probably went to this just north of Capernaum. It's a more remote region. Why does he withdraw? We don't know. Oftentimes when he does, it's either for some solitude, although this time he brings the disciples, so maybe it's to teach them. That's something that he does. In Matthew, it says that he withdraws because he, he realizes there's a plot to kill him and it's not time for him to die yet. So he's pulling back from the religious leaders again. We don't know, but uh, he, he withdraws and people come and follow him. It's really a picture of Jesus' popularity at this point. And his popularity, it's broken through ethnic divisions. You have Jew and Gentile coming to him. And his, prop, his popularity has spread uh, through a pretty large section of, uh, uh, of, of geography, uh, Idumea is 120 miles south, Jerusalem's 85 miles south, Tyre and Sidon are 50 miles north. And remember at this point, for, for word to travel, it's traveling by foot and word of mouth. Like there is no, nobody's posting, nobody's tweeting, there's no, nobody's driving to see Jesus. If you want to, the, the, his reputation has spread by people telling people, telling people, telling people about him. And to me, it's pretty remarkable not just the distance, but also Jerusalem, Judea, those are Jewish areas. Idumea, it's, it's, it's semi-Jewish, semi-Gentile. Tyre and Sidon are completely Gentile. And so he, that, that, that's a significant barrier, the most significant barrier we have in the Bible between Jew and Gentile. And these Gentiles are coming to Jesus. So he has a reputation. I'm sure people want to hear what he's got to say. But his reputation, I think, is probably driven by the fact that he's healing people and he's delivering people from demonic bondage. Those are some pretty helpless situations. There's not a lot of help, not a lot of care offered for people who are sick or people who are suffering from demonic oppression. And Jesus is showing, hey, I can heal and I can deliver. And so people are coming to him. They're coming from a long way away. They're walking days and days and days to find him. He's, he's withdrawn to a remote area and they find him there anyway. Don't picture a crowd that's nice and seated and calm and everybody waiting their turn. Picture the uh, concert or sporting event when they open the doors and everybody's trying to press in. That's what it is. That word, it says that the, they're crowding him. That word is crushed. It's, it's what you do to a grape when you're making wine. So that's Jesus. When it says they're pressing forward, it, it's literally they're falling on him. So Again, kind of get the picture of desperate crowds of people crushing him, falling on him. You see why he wanted the boat. It wasn't necessarily to get away from people. He has compassion for them, and he is ministering to them. It was just to create a little bit of space, I think, so he could teach. And we'll circle back to that in a little bit. Ultimately, he wanted them to hear what he has to say. Absolutely willing and able and loves to meet needs, but he also, I think even more deeply, wants people to hear the truth of what he's saying. So he tries to create a little space there so that he can do that. And the demons continue to recognize him. So far in Mark, they're the only ones that recognize him for who he is, but he's not interested in their testimony. And so he tells them to be quiet. He wants to define what it means for him to be the Messiah. And if that term starts to get thrown, gets starts to get thrown around son of God, then it's going to create a lot of problems for him. There's a lot of baggage with that that will impact the way he can maneuver in public. And so he's trying to keep a lid 
on that. So that's Jesus's popularity. He's by the lake, remote area. People from all over are coming to him. They're pressing in on him. They're crushing him in order to be ministered to by him. Next scene, very different. Jesus went up on a mountainside, so not, on a, not at the lake anymore. And he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we go from Jesus with this large crowd pressing around him at the lake to Jesus on a mountain with just 12. Just these 12 guys that he's called to himself in a deeper way. Why 12? Uh, Wineskin, that's what's going on here. Mark 2, old wineskin, can't handle the new wine. We're beginning to see what this new wineskin is going to look like. Uh, this is the, the this calling is this is the beginning of the capital C church, the new Israel, the new people of God. Not that Israel in the Old Testament is bad; it's just not appropriate for what the Father's trying to do through Jesus. Israel was it was twelve tribes that descended from twelve sons of Jacob, whose name was renamed. Excuse me, who was given the new name Israel. Now we have Jesus calling twelve to Himself. It's a symbol of Him saying, "Here's a new group." that I'm going to be working through. Here's this, this new group, which again, eventually will become the church or the new Israel is what Paul calls, uh, calls us. And again, it's not saying the old Israel is bad, just inappropriate for what God is doing now. If nothing else, the inclusion of the Gentiles, which we just saw in the previous section, you've got people coming from Tyre and Sidon to, to meet with Jesus and hopefully to begin to follow him. That doesn't necessarily work in Judaism. You have to become a Jew if you're going to eventually be a part of the people of God. And with the coming of Jesus, that requirement is done away with. The door is wide open for people like us, Gentiles, to approach God directly through Jesus. So we have this new wineskin. That's why 12 verses 10 or 15. It's not a strategic number. It's a symbolic number. It's to communicate new Israel, new people of God, new wineskin, for the new work that God is doing. Why these 12? And the short answer is nobody knows. Like who, nobody knows why he picked these 12. I think there's a bigger group. We don't know how many disciples Jesus had in Luke. He sends out 70, and that would have been all men. So there's at least 70 men uh, at, at one point. Uh, there are also women. Luke mentions some women who are disciples of Jesus. So there's, there, there's a group there. I, I certainly don't think it's thousands, um, maybe hundreds, maybe. It's difficult to know. And we'll talk about that in a second, kind of this distinction between the crowd and disciples. But there is a group beyond the 12, and out of that group, the disciples, he calls these 12, and he designates them apostles. And apostles means sent ones. That's what it means. And so these are ones who Jesus says he calls to himself, and he gives them this twofold assignment to be with him and then to do what he's doing, which is preach the gospel and to cast out demons. Again, why these 12? It's not a strategic group 
from what we can tell. There's actually not much that we know about them. We probably know more about Peter than just about any of them, and we don't know a ton about them. There's a book behind me. If you're interested, you can read it. I think it's pretty good, really short. A guy named Ellsworth Tallis, and he just looks at the scriptural uh, data on each uh, apostle, he, the 13 apostles, he's including Matthias, who's added after Judas gets, um, after Judas hangs himself, he's added in the book of Acts, along with some of the traditional story of what happens to each of these guys. So if you're interested in finding out some more about those guys, you can look at that, but there's really not much. You'll tell by how thick the book is, that's about how much we know. Not much. There's not much at all. And again, there's nothing necessarily about them that seems to commend these guys to starting a worldwide movement. Um, from what we can tell, none of them are from uh, the, the, the religious elite. None of them are well-connected. From what we can tell, um, they're kind of just common people. And even within that, you've got just kind of the regular guys, Peter and Andrew and James and John, who have small businesses, as fishermen. you got somebody like Matthew, or, or his name's also Levi, who's a tax collector, who was a co- so a collaborator with Rome. And you also got this guy, Simon the Zealot, is how he's named in, in Matthew and Luke, and ours, it's Simon the Canaanian, same guy. And so he would have been violently opposed to any cooperation with the Roman government. So you got, I mean, whoever your most liberal guy is and whoever your most conservative guy is, Jesus has got one of each. And his group of 12. And again, it doesn't make a ton of sense why he picked who he picked. And Luke, we get this little tidbit. Jesus went on the mountain and prayed all night. And at the end of that, he called the 12. So, it, so according to Luke, these are the ones that the Father has said, pick them. And there's truth there. And in, in, in Mark, what we see is Jesus' freedom. He called the ones that he wanted. And so I think what both of those, those windows are saying to us is the calling of these 12 has everything to do with God and nothing to do with them. We, we don't know why, but there was nothing about them that qualified them. They didn't fill out an application. There wasn't a hiring process. Jesus just chose them because he did. He chose them out of prayer, and he chose them because of whatever, whatever he was seeing and knowing about them. It was all his initiative. Again, it, it was a calling to himself to be apostles, and again, you've read the rest of the story, and they don't necessarily acquit themselves super great through the resurrection, but in Acts, we see a turn in them for sure. But again, we're not given very much information. The story is really about Jesus and much less about them. So a couple of things I want you thinking about. There's four groups of people that we've seen so far, four broad groups. There's the religious leaders who reject Jesus. And we're not going to talk about them. We've done that for the past couple of weeks. They've decided he's not the Messiah. They're closing their hearts to him. They want to kill him. But then there are three groups of people that respond to Jesus positively, but they approach him in different ways. There's the crowd, there's disciples, and there's apostles. And what I want us thinking through is kind of where, where am I right now, recognizing that it's not a progression. We don't necessarily move from one to the other. It's more of a, I think there's a mix. There's something about each one of these groups that we want to hold on to. The crowd, again, it's easy to dismiss them. They're approaching Jesus because of a need that they have. They want to be healed. They want to be delivered from demonic oppression. There's a, there are other times where they want to be taught. There's other times where they want to be fed. Jesus almost always, I'm going to say almost because I can't remember every time, 
responds compassionately towards the crowd. He doesn't resent them. He's not rolling his eyes. He, he, he genuinely has compassion for the people who are coming to him. Now, I think it's important for us to recognize all of us, that, that's how all of us initially approach Jesus. There's something that he offered that we wanted. We felt guilty or shame, and he offered us forgiveness. We were scared of going to hell, and he offered us an opportunity for eternal life. We were sick, and he offered to heal us. We were confused, and he offered light. We were depressed, and he offered peace. There's some, that for all of us, that's the initial response. In evangelism circles, I call that your felt need. There's something that you're, there's a, a need that you feel, and Jesus says, I can meet that. And in, uh, normally, uh, oftentimes for us, it's an internal need. And Jesus says he can meet it. And so we say, yes, I'll give you my life and you'll meet whatever this need is. Again, there's nothing wrong with the crowd. That's where we all initially approach Jesus. I think that the issue is if that remains the nature of our relationship. It's very transactional. And over time, Jesus can kind of become like a vending machine for us where we just kind of push the button and say, this is what I need. In Mark, he talks about crowds more than any other of the gospel writers. And one of the things you'll see as we go through the book is the crowd never repents and the crowd never believes. They never take the step beyond approaching Jesus to have their needs met to actually following him. So they're part of the crowd. They're receiving from Jesus something, but they're not receiving everything. And they certainly don't seem to be laying their lives down and following him. In fact, there's some places where the crowd actually is a bit of a barrier. Think about the story we looked at a few weeks ago. We've got a man who's paralyzed. He can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. There's a story where there's a woman who's bleeding and she can't. It's difficult for her to get to Jesus because of the crowd. And if you kind of make that a bit of a metaphor, the same thing can be true for us. If we adopt only that crowd mentality we can wind up, it can create a barrier to the deeper work that Jesus wants to do in us. We never kind of mature or grow out of needing him. And so that's super important. We don't leave the crowd idea behind. We always need him. We're always weak. We're always finite. We're always limited. We're always fallen. Like though we always need him. And that's never gonna change. You don't get to a point, I don't get to a point where we don't need Jesus anymore in that sense of provision, protection, healing, guidance, whatever. That, that, that's always it. What we want to do is, in addition to approaching him that way, we want to add some of these other things. The next group we see are the disciples. They're only mentioned. Jesus withdraws uh, with his disciples. When I think disciple, the, the literal word is student. That's not helpful for us because student for us is really academic. It's classroom-based. Think much more apprentice. It's someone who's saying, I want to live my life like you do. So when Jesus calls Peter, when he calls Andrew, when he calls James, when he calls John, when he calls Levi, follow me. That's a core invitation of Jesus. And they drop everything and attach themselves to him. That's the picture of becoming a disciple. It's not just, I want to learn some things that you can teach me. It's, I want to live my life like you would live my life if you were me. If you lived in my house, I want to live my life like you would. If you had my job, I want to do my job like you would. If you, if you had the different community involvements that I have, I want to do those the way you would. That's what it means to be 
a disciple. It's a, it's a complete, it's an immersive following of Jesus. Again, it's not just learning some things. It's actually becoming a new person, living your life in a radically different way. Again, think of these five that we've already seen. Four of them are fishermen, one's a tax collector. Jesus is on the move to be his disciple means I gotta leave all that stuff, literally leave that stuff. I've gotta drop it because he's moving to the next town. And so if I'm gonna follow him, then I gotta follow him. I, gotta, I have to literally walk with him. It feels different for us. It's more of a metaphor, but there's still reality there. What does it mean for me to drop my nets? What does it mean for me to leave my family? What does it mean for me to walk away from my hometown in order to say, Jesus, I want to live my life the way you would if you were me? And for many of us, when we hear that, we think that's the pinnacle. That's the top. That's what it means to be a Christian. And 100%, there's a lot there, but there's actually even more for us over time. If you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably experienced this. Being a disciple can become inward focused. We can wind up neglecting Jesus' mission for our own personal growth. And that's where this next group comes in. It's the apostles. And that's a fancy word, and people want to say, that's not me, so don't, don't, don't use it then. Just think about being a sent one. That's what that word literally means, or, or being a missionary, but that's not helpful for us either, because when we think missionaries, we think of people who move to another country. What I want you and what I want me to hear is we're all sent ones. We all don't go, unfortunately, but we're all sent. The Great Commission applies to everyone. Go into all the world. Make disciples, baptize, teach. Jesus says, as I was sent, I'm sending you. And that's for all of us. In, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's 12 that he pulls out from this larger group. For us, that's no longer the case. We're all, we, we all approach him initially as part of this crowd, and we don't want to let go of that. We want to recognize and continue to, to, to understand he meets our needs, and there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to get to a point where we think we can do it on our own. We're missing it. And we want to be people who follow him, who say, I want to live my life like you would live my life if you were me. I want to attach myself to you, to apprentice myself to you. I want to learn everything you've got to teach me about how to live life. And we're all apostles. We're all sent ones. Jesus has a mission and he invites us into that. Again, unfortunately, many of us choose not to participate. We stop at the I'm not going to hell part of the equation or we stop at the I'm becoming a better person part of the equation. But we never move on to the what about everybody else part of the equation or the God, what are you actually doing in my community and in this world part of the equation. For better or for worse, God has chosen to work through his people. That's the new wineskin. It's the church, and we're a part of it. And so the things that are going to happen in our city and in our world are going to happen because we say yes to God. And that's not elevating us at all. It's, it's the way God's chosen to work. He's chosen to work through his people. And so there's an additional yes for us even beyond the yes of come and follow me. There's the yes of wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. 
Now, recognize for most of you, and, and I'm included, we're not going anywhere. It's a very small percentage of the church that's called to move to another location. Very, very small. For most of us, the key is not moving to a new location. It's seeing ourselves in a new way. Let me give you just a few things as we wrap up this morning. The first thing I would encourage you to do is to assume that wherever you are, that is the place where God has planted you. And for some of you, that's difficult because you hate where you are. But I want to encourage you just to assume this is where God has me. This is, if you want to say the word, this is my mission field. Wherever it is that he's got you, where you live, where you work, the things you're involved in, that's what he has for you. If God wants you, wants to move you to something else, he is absolutely capable of doing that. As you read through the Bible, when God moves somebody, it's pretty clear that he's ready for them to move. He's the one that takes the initiative in that. We don't have to. So you don't have to spend any time wondering, am I living in the right house? Am I working in the right job? Am I married to the right person? Yes, yes, yes. And if God at some point, the marriage thing's never going to change. If he wants those other two things to change, he'll let you know. He'll let you know. That's kind of to, to lean back towards that discipleship piece. One of the things that will make you the most like Jesus is asking God, what are you doing in this circumstance where I'm miserable? That's one of the places where we grow the most. It's, it's in the difficult times. But for many of us, we just lose sight of, well, God, we're saying God fix it. And he's going, I, I will fix it. But there's something we can do with it first. Like there, we can get some use out of this thing. But we're so focused on ending the pain, the discomfort, that we miss the, the fruit that can come from that. That's a side note. Back to being a sent one. Recognize you're already sent and the, to shift the language. Wherever you're planted is where you have been sent. Again, occasionally God will move us, but he'll take the initiative in that. You'll feel a restlessness. Um, somebody's going to call you out of the blue. You're going to begin to think about things that you've never thought about before. There, there'll be, there, there's a clear path that God will take you on if he's calling you to, to, to uproot. But in general, the assumption is where you are, that's where he wants you to be. And just that shift of mindset can change everything. You're not where you are because it's the only place you could get a job. You're not where you are because you followed him or her to this place. You aren't where you are because it was the only house you could afford. You are where you are because God put you there sovereignly. And he said, here's your dirt. Now do something with it. And that's the second piece. I would say pray that God would open your eyes and my eyes to two things. One, God, where are you already at work? We don't bring God places. There's no place that he's not. We don't bring the kingdom places. That's his responsibility. What we want to do is be a witness to what God is already doing. And so we need eyes to see. There is no place where God is absent. Read Psalm 139. So the assumption wherever you are is, God, you're already here. You beat me to it. I didn't get here first. You beat me. You're already here. So what's, what are you doing? Where, where are you at work in this place? How are you currently moving in the hearts of these people? And so you may have to be quiet for a little bit, maybe for some months, as you discern where God is at work. And then you begin to also notice maybe some places where it seems like God's not at work. 
And you begin to invite him into those places. No, in no place is the kingdom perfectly present yet. There's no place that I know of where God's will is currently being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we want to recognize both of those things. God is, God is at work, but his will is not being done perfectly. And so, God, give me eyes to see both of those things. I want to see where you're currently operating and what it looks like for me to cooperate with you. And I want to know the places that you need to be invited into, where I'm going to ask you to, to, to work more fully than you currently are. A couple of grids that may help you. One is, it's a people group. You've heard of that phrase. It's just a group, a group of people as a descriptive label. So that for you, maybe just thinking about, all right, who are, who are my people? Is it, you know, is it the kids on your kids' soccer team? Is it single moms? Is it your coworkers? Is it people in your neighborhood? Is it people who like to go turkey hunting? Like, what, what's the thing for you, the people that you tend to be drawn to? That may be part of that mission field for you. Another thing that you can think about, we here at Stonebridge, we call them the seven walls. It's taken from Isaiah, this idea of being the rebuilder of walls. They're not ours. A guy named Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade, he kind of landed on these things about 40 or 45 years ago. These major areas of influence in a city, church with a capital C, family, education, business, arts, in culture, arts and media, science and medicine, government and the law? Is there one of those things? You're like, that's, that's, my, that's my area. When I think about the kingdom coming, I think about it through the lens of one of those things. It's not necessarily where you work, although it might be. It's the thing that stirs your heart. Those may not be helpful for, for you, but as you're trying to think through, God, where are you at work and where do, you, where, where do I need to invite you? To, to be at work in a greater area? What does it look like for me to cooperate? It can become overwhelming very quickly. And that, those two grids, may one of those two, may help you kind of focus in a little bit. If you need help walking through that, let me know. And, and I, can, I can help you do that. We have some tools at the church to help people kind of figure those things out. And the last thing I would say is plant some mustard seeds, which for us, that seems so pathetic. It's small, it's, and they, they are, and that's the point. It's a lot easier to plant a seed than it is to plant a tree. Much less disruptive, you're out a whole lot less if it doesn't grow. We plant seeds, that's what we do. Small acts of faithfulness, small acts of obedience. Again, we're, we're not changing the world. Jesus is changing the world. And he'll work through us. And for most of us, we're not going to be Peter. We're not going to be John. We're not writing books. We're going to be James the Lesser that nobody's ever heard of. That's us. We're Thaddeus. That's us. And we've got to be okay with that. We're the nameless and the faceless. Small acts of obedience over time that nobody may ever notice. But it's your part. It's your assignment. It's the way you're cooperating with what God, it's what he has sent you to do. And he'll weave all of those things together to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Again, we tend to want to make headlines and he's going, that's, I don't need headline makers. I need people who are going to be faithful, mustard seed planters. That's what we do. Small acts of faithfulness, 
small acts of obedience in the places where God has already put us. And over time, things change. All right, we're going to be done. Less, this is how we're going to close. We're going to take communion. You'll come forward down the center aisle, break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion there as well as a prepackaged communion. So you take whatever's most comfortable for you. And I want to give you a couple of things to respond to. One, we're two weeks from Easter. And I think and I hope you're all praying for at least one person who you said they need Jesus in a greater level during this Lenten season. They're not a Christian, and I'm praying for their salvation. They are Christian, but they're struggling, and I'm praying for their growth. I'm going to give you an opportunity with, again, two weeks to go before Easter to pray for them. You've, you've already been doing that, but if you want to stand or kneel here at the altar, we want to open that up and make that available to you. And, and I would encourage you, as you're praying for them, think through that lens of, okay, this is one of my people. What is a mustard seed for the next two weeks? Is there a mustard seed that God would want me that you would want me to plant. God, I recognize you're at work in their life. It's not up to me to save them. And, and if it was, we're all in trouble because I can't. This is beyond me trying to convince them of something that's true. They need to be convicted by your Holy Spirit. They need to recognize their need for a Savior. They're, they're, the eyes of their hearts need to be open. I can't do any of that. I'm here to be used however you want. So is there a mustard seed? Again, if it's someone who doesn't know the Lord or someone who's struggling that you would want me to scatter in the next couple of weeks. No pressure, just ask. And then the second thing I would encourage you to think through, as you think through crowd and disciple and apostle, it's easy to think, oh, that apostle, that's the one that we all want to get to. But remember, it's, it's all three. There's never a point where we don't need him. We're always going to approach him from a place of this is what I need. And again, he has compassion on the crowd. He has compassion on you and me. He doesn't roll his eyes. He knows that we're needy people. We always are going to be people who are learning from him, following him, show me how to live. And we want to live as sent ones as well. And if there's one of those, as you're thinking of, of those three, if there's one of those three and you're like, yeah, that's the one for me right now. then we want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer. We'll have ministry teams up here. We'll pray with you about anything. But I would love for you to be courageous and bold enough to say, I need, this is the one for me. I'm really struggling with the idea of, being sent. I don't like where I am. I don't like it. It's hard for me to look at that through the eyes of faith or maybe it's the need thing. You're super self-sufficient and the idea of approaching Jesus from a place of need makes you really, really uncomfortable. It makes you feel selfish. You're doing the other people need him more than me. We've talked about that before. He's infinite. He doesn't take from one to give to the other. So maybe... Uh, you, you want to think about that, and there's one of those that the Holy Spirit's pressing on you. Let these ministry teams pray. So I'm going to say a prayer. Uh, Bo, if you can come back. Ministry teams and communion servers, if you guys can get in your spot. Maybe I'll just make sure there's some room where people can kneel if they want to through the altar. So y'all pray with me. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of Jesus. And as we approach Easter, my prayer is that our 
sense of gratitude would grow deeper and stronger. We recognize his sacrifice, the price that he paid so that we could be reconciled to you. And so as we take communion this morning, we don't want to do so lightly. We want to remember. We want to remember. For some of us, we've been walking with you for a really, really long time. It's hard to remember life before Jesus. But we want to remember as best we can what we were saved from. And you may just want to think about that. What God saved you from. Where you were when you approached him that first time. When you heard the good news for the first time. When he reached his hand out to you and you recognized, here's one who can help. And God, we also want to remember what we've been saved for. And it's not just for ourselves. We're so thankful for the invitation to follow you and we want to do that. And we're also thankful for the commission to go out with you. And we want to do that also. So would you help us? We need you. There are people here who have deep need as they take communion, would you minister to that deep need? There's people who just need to sit in your presence, listening and learning. They have the permission to do that. And there's people who need to, honestly, who kind of need to get moving. And I pray they would sense your leading into whatever that is that you're calling them to. So Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to you, all the different ways that you want to work in us and all the different ways that you want to work through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 